to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're studying this uh, very powerful prayer of Paul in this third chapter. And I've remarked to you many times, as we've talked about this, that this is not your normal prayer. This is not the kind of prayer that most of us ever pray, because we find here nothing about material things, nothing about physical needs, nothing about wealth and health and all of those things. But what Paul is praying for uh, these people is a very spiritual prayer, and it has at its root very spiritual concepts and it has spiritual things at its core. Recently, uh, Brother Gary Moline gave me a, a copy of an article that was in the San Francisco Chronicle, and this article is what we call it was about what we call the prosperity gospel. And this particular article was about a, a, a prosperity preacher one who preaches the prosperity gospel by the name of Creflo Dollar. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. Maybe some of you have. But uh, Creflo Dollar is one of these preachers who believes that uh, success in the Christian life or how close you are to God is um, mostly measured by how wealthy you are uh, and, how, again, how successful that you are in worldly things. And actually, I think that's a very dangerous doctrine for people to be preaching because the Bible doesn't teach us uh, such things as that, that we are to look at health and wealth and prosperity as measurements of whether God is blessing us or not. And really, that kind of a doctrine uh, will lead you mostly to despair rather than to happiness, because you just think about it. Uh, what if you don't reach your financial goals? What if you don't have the same success that somebody else in the church has? What are you going to think? Or are you going to think that somewhere you failed, or you're not as close to God as you should be? And perhaps even that you're a second-class Christian because you don't have the same amount of money that somebody else has. But I don't think that any of us ought to ever look at how much money that somebody has in their pocket or how big a bank account that they have to determine whether they're close to God or not. And if that were true, we could just look at this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 and we would find that that would be the thing that Paul's praying for. And you know why? Because here he says that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. And if being filled with the fullness of God includes your wealth and your prosperity in the world, then Paul would have prayed for it. But in fact, he doesn't pray for things like that. Now, preachers like Creflo Dollar, they probably have a thousand times more money than I have. And I don't think that they get that by God's blessing. Most of the time, they get it from shaking down the people and merchandising the gospel of Christ. That's my opinion of that. So how much we have of the world's goods does not determine how close to the Lord that we are. Now, in tonight's message, I'm going to be talking about to know him is to love him. This is part one of a two-part message. And um, Paul has something here to say about knowing Christ in a very special way. And knowing him in a way that lost people don't understand. And there are also some Christians that are yet to understand what he's talking about here. So we're going to read about this tonight. We're going to start at the beginning of the prayer. Uh, and let's go back to verse number 14. If you'd stand with me, please. Let's read God's word. And uh, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for 
this opportunity we have tonight. I just ask you, Lord, that you'd uh, help as we preach this message. That you'd open the hearts of every person here tonight that we might understand very, more clearly what it means to know you. And we just thank you for Jesus Christ who came into the world to save us from our sins. And most of all, we want to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My message tonight was on, uh, excuse me, last Wednesday night was on the dimensions of Christ's love. And Paul wrote in, here in Ephesians, he said that we might be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And I think that Paul, uh, after finishing mentioning those four dimensions of Christ's love, that now he's ready to move us on and he wants us to uh, truly understand in a very special way just how peculiar the love of Christ is. So Paul is now ready for us to conceptualize love. And here he gives us uh, uh, three different avenues of approach to help us to understand this word know, to know Christ. Three different shades of meaning, I think, are presented in the scriptures here about how we can know Christ. Now, this evening, first of all, I want to talk about those different shades of meaning of the word know and the concept of knowing Christ as Paul talks about it here. So, first of all, tonight, I want to talk to you about the characteristics of love's knowledge. In verse number 18 of the text, Paul uses the word comprehend. And we understand, I think, the word comprehend. Comprehend simply means to get the meaning of something. And you get the meaning of something by exercising your senses, by learning things in in the way of of using your your physical, mental capacities to learn things. And when we think about knowing Christ, one of the ways that we begin to know things is by intellectual comprehension. And certainly we need to understand certain concepts and we learn things through just the intellect. Now I want you to notice, first of all, uh, in this area that Christ's love is grasp. And what I mean by that is to know something, to learn something, to comprehend something is to grasp it. And it means to gain knowledge through a mental process. It's like when you take a, a subject in school. If you're going to take math or physics or something like that, there's a mental process that you go through to acquire uh, that particular learning. Now, when you get the overall concepts of something, when you begin to uh, comprehend a particular subject in school, you get the overall concepts of it, and then you see, you see the big picture, and then you're able to deal with all uh, the different things that help you to arrive at solutions to certain problems. And so there's a mental process that's involved. And what Paul is praying here in one way is for the mental process, and that is that these Ephesian Christians would, would not park their minds, but they would begin to contemplate, to think about the love of Christ. Now, many times when people come into the church, they do park their minds. And Paul is uh, saying here that you Ephesian Christians, you need to exercise your minds and begin to comprehend the mental aspects of knowing Christ. Now, I think we all understand that that's important. You have to begin to use mental faculties to understand things that are in the Bible. And there are too many people that are willing to come to church and they'll sit right there in the pew and they want the pastor to do all the thinking for them. They want the pastor to do all the study for them. They want the pastor to do all the work so they can come to church and they can sit like little newborn birds in the pews and let the pastor regurgitate something into their, into their minds. And so that's the, that's the way they, they approach this thing about going to church. Well, I think it's better for us to... to uh, grasp the things of God, to begin to study the things of God on our own, 
And the problem is that in many churches, preachers really don't want you to know too much. Because when you begin to learn more than they want you to know, then you start to question what they're teaching you. And you start to question their authority for what they have to say. But I don't want to come to church where, where all that you get is what I have to say to you. I want to challenge you with the Word of God so that you go home and you pick up your Bible and you read it for yourself and you begin to understand whether what I'm saying is the truth or not. I want you to examine what I have to say so that you know whether I'm preaching you from uh, the truth from the Word of God. And whenever you find that there's something in error that I might be preaching to you, the best thing for you to do is come right to my office, sit down with me, and explain to me where I need to correct my thinking. I'm a Christian. I'm just like you. And if I'm wrong, the very best thing that can happen to me is I find out where I'm wrong. So if you find out something by studying the Scriptures that, that you think is wrong, let's talk about that. We've got, we've got to grasp and comprehend and apprehend the love of God through an intellectual process. And when you find out that, that your thinking is wrong on something, then you need to change your thinking as well. So there's a mental process that's involved in this. And being a Christian does not mean that you can throw your mind out of gear as the Word of God is preached. And maybe that's what a lot of people do. When you start to nod off, when you start thinking about other things then you're not going to comprehend the truth of God's Word. Now, it's just like taking a subject in school. If you sit in class and you sleep all the way through it, you're not going to learn very much. And when you come to church, if you're not hanging on every word and paying attention to every detail of what I have to say, you're not going to learn as much as you need to learn. So Paul talks about a mental process here in comprehending and and knowing Uh, knowing Christ and the love of Christ. So that's how you start the process. You have to mentally grasp the concept to really know Christ. But then there's a second shade of meaning here, and the second is that Christ's love is experienced. Now, if I were to stop right now, and I were to tell you that being a Christian is purely an intellectual process, then that wouldn't mean anything more to you than learning about any other subject. I mean, it would be just like learning math and physics, geography just like learning English, if all it is is a mental process, then that's all there is to it and you don't need any more. We don't need to talk any more about it. But knowing Christ is not just an intellectual process. If it were, I would encourage every one of you that as soon as you get home tonight, get on the internet and enroll yourself in somebody's seminary somewhere and and try to read all the the, uh, most profound theological works that you could find because being a Christian is an intellectual process. But it's not just an intellectual process. And fortunately, unfortunately, I should say, there are many people who stop at the intellectual process. And so what they do is they know about God, they know about Christ, but they don't really know God, and they don't really know Christ. It's just the intellectual process. Now, if, if I tell you tonight that I know George Bush, and I know my wife, well, you would understand that I mean two vastly different things by that. I know George Bush because I can read about him in the newspaper. I can listen to a speech that he makes. But I know my wife in a very different way. I know her intimately. We have a different kind of relationship. And so we understand that there's a difference between those kinds of knowing things. And when we talk about knowing Christ, it's not just the intellectual process. It's also to experience Christ. And I hope that you can say tonight along with me that I have experienced Christ. I know that something's come into my heart. I know that there's a change there. And I'm not just depending upon the intellectual knowledge that I have of the Bible. There is also experiential knowledge. Now, that helps us to understand 
what seems to be a contradiction in these scriptures. Look at verse number 19. It says, And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Now you say, hold on just a minute there. How are you going to know something that passes knowledge? How can you know something that's beyond knowing? Well, if Christ's love is only an intellectual thing, then, then uh, you couldn't know anything that's beyond your intellect. And so Paul has to be talking about something else here. He has to be uh, speaking about something besides just an, intel- uh, an intellectual or mental exercise. So he's speaking about experiencing him in a different way. And this is when Christ becomes a part of you. That's when Christ lives in you, when he directs you, when you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your person. That's what it means to begin to experience Christ. And that's what being born again is all about. You receive a new nature. And in that new nature, you can begin to experience Christ. Now, all of you here tonight that are Christians, have you ever had this experience that when you do something wrong, immediately you know it? I mean, when you do something that you know is not right, all of a sudden there's that gnawing feeling in the pit of your stomach, and you know this is just not pleasing to God. This is just not the right thing to do. So you feel miserable as soon as you do it. Now, this is what the new birth does to a person. And this is what experiencing Christ does to you. It changes your thinking. It gives you a different outlook on things. And in your innermost being, these kinds of feelings begin to hit you. And that's the experiential side of Christianity. You ever been in a church service and you hear God's word being preached or you pick up the Bible and you start to read it and all of a sudden, for the first time, there's a scripture there or not for the first time, it should say, there's a scripture there you've been reading over and over and over and over again, and all of a sudden, it becomes clear, and now there's a new meaning that the Bible takes on for you? You ever had that experience? I mean, it's just like a light bulb goes on your head, and now you understand it? You've been reading the same scripture over and over again, and you never saw this particular thing. That's God's Holy Spirit. That's when you begin to experience Christ. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me on this because I'm not telling you that knowing Christ is an emotion. How well that you know Christ has nothing at all to do with your emotions. And that's where many of the charismatics miss the boat on this. You can't judge what is right and wrong and whether or not you're a Christian by the emotions that you have. Feelings don't matter in this thing because when you're governed by feelings, then most of the time you're probably not going to feel like you're saved. When you get up in the morning... You're not going to always hear birds singing. When you get ready to go to work, you're not going to skip and hop and jump all the way there because you are oh so happy. It doesn't work that way. You can't depend on the emotions. Now, for somebody to depend on their emotions to judge their Christianity is no different than Creflo Dollar depending on how wealthy he is to determine whether how close he is to God. So knowing Christ is to experience him in such a way that Christ's spirit witnesses with your spirit that you are a child of God. And when you experience Christ, the experience is converted into your assurance of salvation. And when you experience true love, I think everybody in here tonight, if you've experienced true love, you like to hear the person that you love tell you that they love you. Don't you like that? And when you know Christ in an experiential way, this is when you hear Jesus saying to you, I'm real. I'm not just a character in a book that you've read. I'm real to you, and I love you. And that's what it means to know Christ. Now, there's a third shade of meaning here. I've already touched on this just a little bit, but the third characteristic of Christ's love is that Christ's love is surpassing. It's 
beyond knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. And what I think that Paul means by this when he says it is that you can never get to the bottom of Christ's love. The deeper that you go into Christ's love, the deeper the depths become. You can keep going in Christ's love and you'll never touch the bottom. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. When we start to read the Word of God, if, if, uh, if you read the Word of God and you study it every single day, I think that everybody here by experience will say, there's something new in the Word of God for you all the time. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, it, it doesn't make any difference how many times you've read through the Bible. You can read it cover to cover and you can start reading the Bible again and something new is going to be opened up to you. And that's because the Word of God is an infinite book. This is not a book that was written by man. Now, of course, God used men as instruments to write the Bible, but men didn't think up the words that were in the Bible. If the Bible were merely man's book, then somewhere, somebody would understand completely everything that the Bible has to say. But it's not man's book. It's God's book, and it's an infinite book. Now, when you think about God and you learn about God, you learn that he is infinitely holy, He's infinitely just, he's infinitely righteous, and also his love is infinite. On Sunday mornings, we've been studying the Gospel of John, and John is often referred to as the disciple or the apostle of love. Did you know that John is the only one who wrote in the Bible this, these particular words? He's the only one who wrote this. In two places in 1 John, he's the only person who wrote, God is love. Twice, In the book of 1 John, chapter 4, John wrote, God is love. Now think about that for just a moment. If God is infinite and God is love, then his love must also be infinite. You can never get to the bottom of God's love. And so that's why Paul says here, and to know the love of God which passes knowledge. So we have an intellectual side of love. That's where you grasp the concept. You have the experiential side of love where you experience the reality of love. And then there's the surpassing side of love. And that's where you never get down to the bottom of Christ's love for you. Now, I want to move on this evening to another thought. The title of the message, of course, is to know him is to love him. And so now that we've got the conceptual side out of the way, the characteristics of knowing uh, how to love God, the second thing that we need to speak about is the claim of love's blessings. And this is what we can call the practical side of God's love. You see, as a Christian, God loves you even when you're disobedient. Now, when I, my kids were growing up, there were many times and they didn't do what I wanted them to do. Lots of times... I was not happy with my children, but I didn't stop loving them. I I still loved them no matter whether they did right or wrong. But as a parent, I knew this, that it wouldn't be right for me to give my kids things regardless of whether they were obedient or rebellious to me. I mean, I withheld certain things from them because they were being rebellious. Now, later in this book, Paul is going to deal with matters of conduct and behavior, and how far that you go into the depths of Christian or Christ's love is largely dependent, folks, on conduct and behavior. I don't think any of us would argue that a person who just barely drags themselves out for Sunday morning services and comes to church, he only comes once a week. I, I don't think that you could say that he will experience the depth of Christ's love as much as one who is diligently concerned about his relationship with the Lord. And don't misunderstand that statement either, because I'm not saying that God loves one Christian over another Christian, depending on whether you go to services two times a week or three times a week. 
That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the individual will experience the love of God and he'll comprehend the love of God depending upon the closeness of his fellowship with the Lord. Now, here's where we have to be careful about this because there are some preachers who would tell you that there's a formula that you can follow. And if you'll just follow this particular formula, then you're automatically going to achieve this particular result. Now, let me elaborate on that by making this first point, and that is that God's blessings cannot be demanded. The first thing that you have to learn about God is that whatever he does, he does at his own discretion. Now, I wish that some of our Baptist brethren would get a hold of that truth because many of their uh, ministries are ministries of demand. They have ministries that approach this whole subject of salvation as if God owes people something. And they start out on the wrong side of this by thinking that God owes man salvation. And they say it can't possibly be true that God has chosen a particular people for himself because God has to offer salvation or make salvation available to every single individual in the world. Now, that's not going to be my subject tonight, but I want to comment just briefly on it. All that you have to do to refute that kind of thinking is look at history, number one, and look at our current world situation. Throughout the Old Testament, God dealt with only one nation, and that was Israel. They were the only ones that he had anything to do with. And when the children of Israel went in to possess the land of Canaan, God said, drive those people out. And he said, kill all those people that are there. He didn't say go witness to them. He said, go kill all them are there. I'm going to leave it to you to figure out why God said that. But that's what God did, and God had the right to do that. Now, in the modern world... What God has told us to do is to go and evangelize the entire world. And so there is no distinction here based upon a person's race or based upon uh, where they might live or what nationality they have. We're to give the gospel to all people without regard for who they are as individuals. I mean, as far as race and wealth and all those other things are concerned. So we're to give the gospel to everybody, but it's clearly evident that the gospel does not reach everybody. There are billions of people in the world who have never heard the gospel of Christ. They're dying right now, and they will never hear the gospel of Christ. So it's very clear to us that God has not made salvation available to every single person through the preaching of the gospel. It just doesn't happen. Our own experience tells us that doesn't happen. Well, what does that show us? It shows us that God does what he wants to do. God could make sure that every person in the world heard the gospel of Christ. He could do that. He has the power to do it, but he hasn't done it. Now, again, I'm going to leave you to maybe to study that out and figure out why God doesn't do it, because I don't know all the answers to that. You might explore it on your own there. But the same thing that I'm telling you about this is true of temporal blessings. I mean, just the blessings that we receive of God in this life. God is not obligated to us in any way so that when we perform a certain action, so that when we, like monkeys, do a particular task, that God gives us a treat because we did that. It's God's right to give or withhold the blessing. We can't demand anything from God. And when you think about that, when you think about does a particular action guarantee a particular outcome for a Christian, again, experience tells us no, because we look at missionaries. Missionaries are some of the most self-sacrificing people that you'll ever meet. Perhaps they're closer to God, or many of them are, than people here closer than I am to the Lord. But what happens to many missionaries? They suffer horribly many times for their, for their preaching of the gospel of Christ. And God permits that to happen. And you look at uh, the martyrs down through the centuries. 
Thousands, millions of them burned at the stake. Their limbs torn from their bodies. And yet these were people who under no kinds of duress would renounce Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So you see, folks, there is no particular outcome. There's no guarantee for a Christian in this life of any particular blessing. Now, if there were, what would happen is that would lead us more to despair than it would to ecstasy. And so that's why a Creflo Dollar system of, of, and the word of faith movement that depends on this name it and claim it theology, it can't work. It's not God's way. Now, folks, the United States of America today is flooded. We're flooded with Christian books on devotional living, on self-helps and things like that. What you can do to guarantee God's blessings in your life. And what happens when the blessings don't come? Then people are left with a problem. You can see all those books do is they mechanize this thing of God giving the blessing. And there are lots of preachers who preach that way, dress this way, look that way, do this particular thing, and now God's going to give you the blessing. And you're guaranteed that God's going to bless you if you do this. Well, I'm sorry, but I can't tell you that God's going to bless you in any particular way for any particular action that you take. Now, here's the whole thing about it. You can't do things by rote and ritual to think that you're going to receive the blessing of God. The blessing has to start from the inside. It starts from what you are on the inside, not what you're doing on the outside. And God gives us a blessing wherever God sees fit to give a blessing. Now, here's what Christians will do. They'll pick up a, a devotional book, and they'll, they'll read this great story about some evangelist who, who read a particular passage of Scripture in the Bible, and he read this passage of Scripture every day for 30 days, and he kept reading it and reading it. And after 30 days, all of a sudden, he became enlightened, and God sent a great blessing down on his life. And you know what the, what the implication of that is or what they're trying to get you to believe? You do the same thing and you're going to receive exactly the same blessing. And so when you try it and you do it and you read it and you practice it and you do all the things that this other person did and you don't receive the blessing, you don't have the light come on, when the fuzzy feeling doesn't come to you, then what do you think about that? Well, you think I must be doing something wrong. I've missed one of the steps. Something's not quite right here. I mean, I'm not achieving the results that I hope to achieve. Anybody here remember that book that came out a few years ago, The Prayer of Jabez? You know that book? You ever read that? Hope well, whether you have or whether you haven't, The Prayer of Jabez is a mechanized means to reach a blessing. And so what they say or claim in this book, you pray the prayer of Jabez and you're guaranteed to receive what some obscure Bible character that most of you have never even heard of that you're going to receive the blessing that he received. And that's their guarantee. And that sold millions upon millions and millions of books. God doesn't work that way. There's not a guaranteed success in anything like that. It's the same thing with the purpose-driven life. The purpose-driven life is Rick Warren's mechanicalized, or mechanized, I should say, approach to God's blessing. But let me ask you something about that. I read somewhere that There are 25 million copies of that book sold. It's been translated into 56 languages. 400,000 pastors have been trained to use it. 30,000 congregations have gone through it. Let me ask you something. Do you see a revival in America? Do you you see all of a sudden people closer to the Lord and we've got this great revival happening here? Is it there? Do you see great changes for the cause of Christ? 
The same thing happened when this uh, movie came out, The Passion of the Christ. And now people were saying it's the greatest evangelistic tool the world has ever seen. This is a new way to present the gospel. And so now thousands upon thousands and thousands of people are being saved through this movie. Where are they now? Where are all those people now? Well, I don't see any great revival happening in America. So here's what I want to tell you. What have those things done that the plain, simple preaching of the Word of God cannot do? What is it? Nothing. What we do is preach the Bible, the Word of God, and the means has ever been the same of people being saved through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there aren't any mechanized means to get to all these kinds of blessings. But what we need to do, though, is we need to be in the place where the blessings come. We have to be prepared for the blessing when it, when it comes. When blind Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was coming to Jericho, what did he do? He got on the same street where Jesus was going to be passing through. Did he have any guarantee that, that Jesus was going to see him or Jesus was going to heal him? No. But he was in the place where Jesus was passing When Zacchaeus climbed up in that sycamore tree, was he certain that Jesus was going to spot him in the sycamore tree? No. He got in the place where he could see Jesus. And that's what we have to do. We have to be in the place where the blessing comes. And if God sees fit to give us the blessing, praise God for that. He'll do that. But that's at his own discretion. So by conduct and behavior, we can put ourselves on the street or in the tree where Jesus is passing. You understand what I'm saying? Now, let's notice one other thing about this, and we'll leave uh, uh, the rest of this till, till part number two next week. Secondly, the blessing will be resisted by the devil. Now, I know I've mentioned this many times before, but when, um, when a person is lost, it's the devil's chief goal and objective to keep that person from hearing the gospel and receiving Christ as the Savior. Satan is constantly at work trying to hinder the progress of the gospel of Christ. And he works right here in this church. Every time that I stand up to preach the gospel message, Satan will try to distract somebody. He'll try to cause noises. He'll cause commotions to go on. He'll, he'll cause our attention to be turned to something else. Our minds will begin to wander. And Satan does that to keep people blinded to the truth. And let me tell you something. If Satan was the only one who was at work here... He would always be successful. Not one single person would ever be saved if Satan was the only one who was at work in this building. But Satan's not the only one here. The Holy Spirit is here. And the Holy Spirit's stronger than the devil. And so when the Spirit begins to move, he moves upon hearts in such a way that there is nothing that can stop the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't care what it is. You can't resist the power of the Holy Spirit when he is savingly and convincingly bringing people to Jesus Christ. When he wants to bring about a new birth, he's going to bring about a new birth. Now, there are some preachers who would have you to believe, well, oh, well, this is, uh, the new birth is something that you do. The new birth is simply a decision that you make, and God leaves it up to you. Do you want to be saved? You don't want to be saved. And it's a simple decision-making process. Do you know if that was the truth? Nobody would ever be saved. And you know why? Because the devil is constantly resisting people coming to Christ, and the devil's stronger than anybody here. And so if he's the only force at work in a sinner's heart, he will always be successful in keeping them from being saved. 
But he's not. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than the devil. And so what the Holy Spirit does is overcome Satan's power. And he overcomes the resistance to the gospel of Christ. And without that, again, nobody would be saved. Now, Satan doesn't stop, though. If he can't prevent the new birth, which he can't with the Holy Spirit is working. If he can't prevent your salvation, which he can't, then he'll try to do the next thing. And that is once you do get saved, he'll try to keep you as a baby Christian. He'll try his best to keep you from getting into the Word of God. He'll do his very best to keep you from studying, from praying, from attending church, whatever it might be. He attempts to keep you a baby Christian. And unfortunately, there are people who've been saved all their lives, and that's what they are. They're still baby Christians. They're still being spoon-fed. They're still given the nipple. They're on milk all of the time. And you know something else, folks? There are some preachers who want to be your mama. They do. They want to keep you in that kind of a state. They don't want you learning more about the Word of God. Really, when you, honestly, when you get down to it, they want to keep you on the simple things, and so they feed you milk all of the time, a steady diet of milk. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now, and that is that if you are in a church or if you have a preacher who does not understand and does not preach the doctrines of grace, he has forced himself to ignore the majority of the Bible's teaching. The devil has a field day in our churches today because he's keeping people ignorant of God's word. And guess what, folks? It's not because he keeps them out of church. It's because they're going to church. He keeps them ignorant by sending them to church. I mean, the pastors feed the people tutti-frutti all the time because they're all babies. Now, folks, here's what the devil does. He resists God's blessing in your life. And the moment that you begin to experience the truth of Jesus' love and you experience the work of Christ in your heart, the devil starts to put an array of his followers together. And he starts work on you on that, in that very moment. I mean, you can come to church here and, and you can be on a spiritual high. The Spirit of God may touch you. And as soon as you hit those doors out there, immediately something's working to tear you down. I mean, you just had a great day at church. But before you ever get home, something happens to start tearing you down. That's the devil at work. He doesn't want you to be affected by the Spirit of God in a positive way. So he's always working against you. Now, when you start to, begin, uh, start to, to grow in God's Word, when you start to learn more about God's Word, you will find out that the devil will be your constant companion. He'll be there all the time. You'll be aware that hell is everywhere around you. Now, anybody who tells you this, well, it's all so simple. Here's your formula to follow. Here's your devotional book to read. And now everything's going to be all right. Just read this little devotional book and everything's going to be fine. That person's lying to you because it doesn't work that way. You wonder why Paul and the other writers of the New Testament are are constantly warning us about spiritual warfare. They're, They're always telling us the devil's out there. The false gospel is out there. False apostles are out there. They're always telling us those kinds of things. Why is that? Because they're out there. It's all real. And the devil's trying to work on you. Now, do you wonder why that the devil keeps telling us all those things? Or why he's always trying to keep us in the dark about this? Because he doesn't want you to grow in your Christian life. Now, if the Creflo Dollar's doctrine was right, if health, wealth, and prosperity was the truth of God's word, Jesus would not have said this. In the world, ye shall have 
tribulation. Now, you've listened to me tonight, and there's going to be a part two of the sermon, but if you're listening to me tonight, and now you've come to the conclusion, all hope is lost. I mean, the pastor has just got up there and told me that my life as a Christian, I'm destined to be unhappy. I mean, there's, there's nothing I can do about it. There's no guarantees. My, my life's going to be troublesome and burdensome. There's no hope for me now. Well, if that's what you think, then you're almost to the truth of this passage. You just have to go a step further. Paul says, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. You see, when you come to the point of desperation and you realize there's nothing you can do to help yourself and there's no guarantees of all these blessings, then you become totally dependent on God. Now you start looking past the physical things. That's when you abandon Creflo Dollar and Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and Kenneth Copeland and Health, Wealth, and Prosperity. You ignore that. You get past that because now you realize the physical is not what I need. It's the spiritual thing that I need. Now, let me quote to you the rest of the verse I quoted just a minute ago, or part of that verse. John 16, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So you know what he means by that? I have overcome the world. How? By his death and his resurrection from the grave. And when you get hold of the fact of this, that your enemy, the devil, your nemesis, the devil, is already a defeated foe, then you get beyond the physical. You get beyond what's in this life. You get beyond what's immediate to you right now. And you begin to look beyond temporal things and you look to the eternal. You look to the infinite things. And that's when you start looking at the captain of your salvation. And you don't look at physical things to bring you happiness. Nobody understands this. I mean, Christ, I mean, lost people don't understand this. They don't understand how Christians can go through persecution. They don't understand how Christians endure troubles. They don't understand how a Christian can lose a baby or lose another loved family member and still go on. They don't understand that. They don't know why you don't give hope. They don't understand why a person could lose his job and his finances go completely down the tubes and he still survives it. He still goes on. Why is that? Because the Bible says that we have hope. And hope in the Bible does not mean something unsure. It means a positive. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and our hope is everything. Now, let me finish the message with this thought tonight. Don't live in the experiences of others. Now, let me explain the statement. There are some Christians who find all their hope and their confidence in what happened to somebody else. They hear this story about some Christian that that, uh, went through some kind of a trial. They had some kind of problem in their life, some great problem, and God solved their problem, and they went on to live a victorious Christian life. Now, preaching... In our preaching, we talk about things like that. And, and I may give you an illustration about that. And I do that because I want you to understand that these things have been overcome. Problems have been overcome. God's still on the throne. God still takes care of things. But the problem is that many Christian people are living just in that illustration. That's their hope, is in the illustration of what somebody else has done, what's happened to them. And so they've never really experienced the victory themselves. They're always living in somebody else's victory. Now, they've got the the defeated part down because that's where they live every day. But they haven't got to the place where the victory is their victory. Now, folks, to know Christ 
is to know a love that passes all knowledge. And it's to get us to the place where, where we have the victory ourselves. It's not somebody else's victory. It's not some great preacher's victory and what happened to him. It's your victory. So don't live in somebody else's experience. Start knowing Christ better yourself right now. Now, here's a verse that, that's often misquoted, but I need to use it right here. Revelation, or misapplied, I should say. Revelation 3.20. There Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And you all know, most of the time, that's a verse that's used to refer to salvation. This is not talking about salvation. The context here is Jesus speaking to the church. These are people that are already saved. And what he's saying to them is, open the door, friend. You've been living in yourself all the time. You're behind your own closed door. You're living there by yourself. And what you need to do is open up the door to this experience of Christ. Let Jesus come in. I mean, that means for Jesus to come in in such a way that he's not fellowshipping with you, but you're also fellowshipping with him. And that's when you come to the place that you're not always the taker in that relationship. You're also the giver. And when you come to know Christ more and you experience Christ more, you become a giver. I'm not talking about money. That might be involved. But you are one who gives of yourself. And your goal is to give Jesus Christ. To know him is to love him. And you can't stop talking about him. That's the real experience of knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm talking about. To know him is to love him. Is that where you are tonight? Are you in the place where you love Christ so much and you know him so much, you've experienced him so much that you can't stop talking about him? Most Christians will go through this entire week and they'll never think about Jesus Christ. Every decision they make, everything they do, everything that happens, God, thoughts of God never come to their mind. That does not happen to somebody who really knows Christ. Every waking minute, in some way, you see God. And that's what I think it means to know Christ. Next week, part number two, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. Lord, I I just pray that you would help us to understand better what it is to know you. And Lord, help us to give up on ourselves. Give up on the physical things and, and depend on those types of things for our happiness. That never brings happiness to a Christian. But, Lord, we find everything in you, not in temporal things, but in the glories of all that you have prepared for us. Lord, bless your people tonight. Speak to hearts in this time of invitation, and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.